Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can gather, that we can uh, learn about you, that we can be uh, prompted, we can be convicted, we can be guided uh, by your spirit. And Father, as we come to this passage, there's a, 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 a series of instructions. And it can be so easy for us to um, lose sight of the whole of Hebrews. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to have clarity to keep uh, the horse before the cart, so to, so to speak, that we understand that Christ made the sacrifice. He came, he lived, he died. He made the sacrifice on our behalf. What he did was sufficient and complete. And we bring nothing to the table in addition to that. We are saved by grace alone, period. End of story. For those of us that are here today that maybe not, don't know you, don't understand the gospel, we pray that by your spirit, you would help each of us, Lord, to, 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 to come to that understanding, to be reaffirmed of that truth, that we've been reconciled to you through the work of Christ. And it's simply through belief that that transaction is sealed. But as we receive the Spirit, you do a work in our life and you demand from us that we live for you, not trying to earn favor with you, but out of gratitude, out of worship, we respond because our lives have been transformed. And so as we look at this series of instructions, we ask that you would help us to keep the gospel in the center of it all and that we would keep these instructions secondary. These aren't done to earn favor with you. They're not done to try to get things right, to pay back for our past sins. You've taken care of all of that in Christ. And as we experience this grace, we are utterly transformed. So Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds, that we would desire to live for you with all of what we are, our thoughts, our heart, our desires, our actions. And we need help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, Let love of the brethren continue. And do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And Lord, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us to understand what it means, how it applies to our life. And Lord, we ask that you would um, help us to live it out. Um, for this section is not hard to understand. The difficulty comes in living it out. 
And so we ask that you would guide us this day, that you would prompt us along in our journey with you. Um, May we honor you uh, with our lives. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. So the verse that we read, or verses, these six verses, there's some commands. It's uh, love the brothers, practice hospitality, uh, remember the prisoners, uh, honor marriage, Guard your character. This seems like a honeydew list. And if I read this in isolation, it would be very easy to, um, by my nature, uh, I have German blood. I have a whole bunch of kind of blood, so I don't know who you want to blame it on. I'm a mutt. Um, But I identify with my German blood because I like checklist. Like, just give me a list of, of things to buy if it's a grocery shopping. If there's things that I need to do, just give me a list and I'll check the boxes. So when I came to Christ and I began to sort of attempt to figure things out, I came to to God with a list. Just tell me what you need me to do and I'll do it. And by doing this list, I, I will pay back my wrongs. I will make right the things I've done wrong. And if I do the list, I can stick to the list. When I mess up on that list, just give me a new list, and I'll do that list. And so it would, it would, it would be very easy to miss the thrust of the purpose of this passage. And so I'm going to tell you that the purpose of this passage is twofold. It is an encouragement to be thankful, to have gratitude, and it's about worship. Now, if I did a poll and said, hey, uh, define worship for me, how would we define worship? I would think singing songs, right? It, we, when, we, when we come to church, we have the worship time. The worship time is the time when music is played. It's worship. But is it the full definition of worship? It's not. It falls terribly shy if I'm thinking, I try to refer to it as the music time. It's it's time of music. We're worshiping God through music, but it's not worship exclusively. Uh, we might go on to expand to say, well, maybe reading the Bible and and uh, going to church and uh, contemplating God in prayer. Maybe these are worship, and I would say, yeah, they're they're worship. Certainly when never has it crossed my mind to say, uh, when somebody says, what is worship? I say, well, worship is loving your brothers. Worship is being hospitable. Worship is considering and remembering prisoners. Worship is keeping marriage uh, in an honorable view. Mar- uh, worship is uh, working on your character. Never. And you might say, well, Gunnar, I didn't see worship mentioned at all in today's passage. Um, and I would point you to the previous two verses that we started with in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. We covered this two weeks ago. And in there we're told at the sort of the conclusion um, that let us show gratitude, let us be thankful, let us 
serve um, or let us worship the living God. There's, there's a, in the New American Standard, the King James and the, uh, I have it written down here, the Young's Literal Translation, it says, by which we offer God acceptable service. Now, the NIV, the ESV, and the New Living Translation use that word service as worship, which I think is fair. I really like the New Living Translation rendering of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, which says, um, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a consuming or a devouring fire. Think, wow, that's powerful. Well, how do we show gratitude? How do we uh, worship this God who is a consuming fire? Well, he's going to give us some examples. And if we were to go all the way to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, sort of on the other side of the sandwich, so you have the first, gratitude, thank, uh, gratitude worship. Verse 15, it says, through him, that's Jesus, then let us continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. It's like perfect timing for Thanksgiving. I, di- I didn't plan this. It just happened. So we're instructed to be a thankful people. We're, we're instructed to worship God with reverence and fear. And sandwiched between these two commands in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12 and verse 15 of uh, chapter 13, there's all of these instructions, very practical. Well, how do I worship you, Lord? Well, let me explain, he says. First, he says, let us, let us, let the love of the brethren continue. First thing that caught my eyes when I studied this in the English was that word continue, which tells me that the author, who is often referred to as the pastor who's preaching a sermon to them, He's acknowledging that what he's encouraging them to do, they're already doing it. He's, he's not beating them up for following, falling, falling short. He says, let the love of the brethren continue. Keep on doing what you're doing. And this idea of loving the brethren, I think bleeds throughout this whole passage today and probably all of chapter 13, if not the, the whole of the New Testament. So we look at this word love. I see the word brethren. And actually, in the Greek, if we were to look at this sentence, there's only two words there. Third, if you want to carry, if you want to, um, if you want to count the article, but that's a different subject. I'll call it three if I want to cheat. I kind of see it as two words. It's, It's literally continue brotherly love. Um, this word love is philo combined with Delphia, Philadelphia, the word we all know, the irony of the city of Philadelphia. Who's been to Philadelphia? I don't know anybody that would describe Philadelphia as a city of brotherly love. (laughs) One person, he must be from there. Somebody in between services told me that they refer to Philadelphia as the city of brotherly shove, which probably makes more sense to me. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So there's these two words, continue in brotherly love. You could literally translate it, 
the brotherly love let remain. Um, this is a special sort of love. You could use this word brotherly love, you can say of love of the same uterus. That you have two people that share a uterus, not maybe not at the same time, but, but they, they, they're, they're so closely knit to one another that there's a special sort of love amongst brothers, maybe not like when they're three and five, but even at three and five, my boys, like, making us go gray, we're losing our hair. But they're so adorable and how they like love each other so much and often it comes with tears and wounds and all sorts of stuff that will last. And the author here says, well, now you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You share the womb of being born again through the Spirit of God. And so when you gather wherever it is as brothers and sisters in Christ, you are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Swindle on this verse says this, this kind of love demands something from each of us. We're not just attending spiritual meetings during the same time slot. We're members of a body. The exhortation to maintain Philadelphia carries with it strong implications for taking seriously our identity as members of the same permanent spiritual family. Now, when I came to Christ, this was all foreign to me. This is not what I... I'm not the guy that came to Christ intellectually. I'm a guy that came to Christ because my life was absolutely a disaster. Uh, From a worldly standpoint, I was very successful. I was a SEAL. I made it through this tough training. But I was drinking and partying, and and my life was out of control, ultimately leading to resisting, evading arrest, ultimately leading to my security clearance being suspended. And in that dark season, through a buddy that started nagging me to go to church, I went to church. And I went to church because there was a, I, I felt a need. I, I sensed that there was God. I knew who I was, and there was a barrier there, and I needed to fix that. And I remember going to church, and I remember like the music beforehand seemed really weird to me. I, I was... I was raised in a tradition where uh, there might be singing there today, but even if there was singing, my family, my dad hauled us to the very earliest service where there wasn't music so that we could get through the line and get out of there, check the box. And so we would go and there would be music and, and, and it didn't make sense to me. It's like, why is there a concert before church? Like, this is weird. And then slowly over the course of time, I, I recognized that what I needed was Jesus And then as I came to the point where I got right with Jesus by believing and trusting in him, the music began to change. And I realized, I'm like, man, we're like singing songs to God. And it became meaningful to me. And then as I continued to grow and to develop, my whole American idea of life began to change slowly. Um, and up to that point, it's like, well, spirituality, that's between me and God, and it's none of your guys' business. But then the reality of the whole idea that I was born again into this new family of a bunch of weird people, I recognized that there was a desire within me to participate with this new family of mine. I began to see that God was calling me 
beyond just myself, but to others. And I'm not speaking as a pastor. I was an active duty Navy SEAL that was wrestling with how did Christianity fit. And, and I began to get more involved. Um, I began to experience what Jesus described on the night in which he was betrayed in John 13, 34. As he kicks off this last meal, he looks at his disciples and he says, I have a new commandment for y'all. This new commandment is that you love one another, and as you do this, if you do this, the world will know that you're my disciples. We'll learn in the Lord's Supper, we learn through the life of Christ, we learn through the epistles that this love, this brotherly love that he mentions, it's not a feeling. This is a choice. This is a decision. This is committing to this family, the body of Christ. And as I've linked into the local body, I'm a deep believer of the local church, that as we commit to one another, we see that, you know, like every family, there's uncle so-and-so that's a little bit off. And there's so-and-so that's a little bit annoying. But, you know, that's aunt so-and-so. We love her. We, we you know, she's family. Well, that happens here too. We each can be a little annoying at times. We can uh, uh, kind of tick people off at times. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.8 that love covers a multitude of sins. And, and if I'm committed to loving this body, then when one of you tick me off or I tick you off, and you guys are all very loving because I'm your pastor and you're like, I'm not perfect... You say, no, I've committed to loving this individual because he's my brother in Christ. I may not feel it right now, but I'm not going to squabble over silly things. I'm not going to make a big deal about things. I'm going to be gracious to you guys because God has been so gracious to me. And so this love is something deeper. And he says, you guys are doing it. Continue in this love. And so to explain this love, he's going to touch a subject that's can be a little bit difficult for some of us. I'm one of the us in this. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Hospitality is not my nature. Um, I would not describe myself as a hospitable person. I am more, not to harass any introverts, but I am more of like a, I'm more of an introvert. I would rather, I mean, not rather, I got to be careful in what I say. I, um, oh man, I'm already in trouble. Can I just run away right now? <laughs> you know, like, I, um, so my wife is an extrovert. And I love coming on Sundays. I love interacting with all of you. But Sunday afternoons, I'm so out of gas. I like just need to like take a nap and just take a long nap. And hopefully by Tuesday, I'm recovered. <laughs> Anna comes home from a gathering at church and she's like, I got so much energy. Can we invite some more people over and we can, we can uh, make waffles and we can do stuff? And it's like, <sighs> can they come over and would it be okay for me to be in the back room asleep on the bed? And she's like, that's, that's fine, dear, as long as we can. So when I see hospitality, it, it like, 
it's it's been a learned lesson and i and i and there's more but you guys aren't a counselor to me right now but but i have childhood trauma that's probably connected to this and it's not been my default and so if you when i look at the church I, most of the church has been in our home um, it's Anne is like guiding me i've become better in practicing hospitality um, because of my commitment of loving others that I'm all for it. And I'm the first, you know, somebody says, hey, I'm coming into town like the Wagnalls. It's like, hey, you can stay at our house. And and it's it's not my natural default. Um, but because of my commitment to the Lord, I've developed this. And, and we're encouraged, even the introverts in this room, we're told, do not neglect. This word is neglect like, like you uh, left a baby in the car and then you went shopping and a couple hours went by and it's like, oh yeah, there's a six-month-old in my car. I totally forgot. That, that, that's the word neglect that's used here. So don't neglect being hospitable. And it's going to get worse. Some of you have already read ahead and it says to strangers and you're like, oh man, what are they taught? Like, how can that be? How are we supposed to be hospitable to strangers? Um, you're probably not alone in asking that question. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, over in Luke chapter 10, there's a story that we all know, we all hear it. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is approached by an attorney. Now, don't think attorney in uh, today's sense of the word attorney. This would have been a lawyer in the sense of of an individual who was required or his role was to uh, explain the responsibility that an individual had as they related to the Holy Scriptures. And so when it came to sort of pragmatically living out your life and honoring the Scriptures, this individual sort of set the law, and so they were called a lawyer. And so we're told in verse 26, the story develops, a lawyer stood up and he put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a great question. This is a question we all should have. Hey, Jesus, I want eternal life. I recognize that that deep within me, there's more to me than just this body. And when I look around, everybody dies. So how do we rectify what happens to the part of me that I know is eternal so that I can be with God? How, How do we achieve this? Great question. But Jesus isn't playing with a little child here. He's, he's, he's dealing with the religious leader. This is the guy that sets the law. And so Jesus enters into the sparring match, so to speak, with this attorney that's trying to trip up Jesus. And so Jesus asks him, hey, you're an expert of the law. If you were approached by an individual, how would you answer this question? And the guy gives a brilliant answer. In fact, he gives the same answer that Jesus would give in Matthew 22, when asked by an attorney, what's the most important point of the law? Jesus gives the same exact answer. And so the lawyer responds in verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. And so now the attorney's got this other dilemma, that last part, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. He asks him, who exactly is my neighbor? So amongst the rabbis, they each had their own interpretation of this law. 
So some rabbis would say that you would define neighbor as your immediate family. So you're talking your spouse, your children. Some would say maybe your in-laws and your parents. Some would say maybe it would extend out to your siblings. Others would say maybe it would go out to your siblings and also to the children, so the cousins. Some would say maybe the house immediately next door to you. They all had their different opinion. But you can understand that the broader this circle gets, the harder it, it is to apply this. And so Jesus said, you answer correctly. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 29, the attorney, but wishing to justify himself, he's got a bit of a problem here. And he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's a great question. So we know that the rabbis had sort of concentric rings of how they would define this. And so Jesus tells a story. He says there was a man. You almost get the impression that he was leaving Jerusalem, going down the hill where there's a bunch of robbers and criminals. This man is jumped on the side of the road. He's beaten up, sort of left for dead. And Jesus says, oh, a, a priest walks by priest kind of goes to the other side of the road. I don't see anything. That's not my neighbor. I don't know that guy. I'm going to continue on. Levi. So Levite comes next. I'm just trying to say, yeah, a Levite comes next. Basically the same thing. Then a third individual comes, a Samaritan, who they all hated. They were a mixed breed of, of individuals, half Jew, um, half non-Jew, and they all hated. So at the mention of a Samaritan, All the players in the story would say, oh, Samaritan, we don't like that guy. So Jesus says the Samaritan stops, applies first aid, treats this individual, then takes the individual to an inn, and when he checks him into the inn, he basically gives the inn his credit card. I mean, there wasn't a credit card, but he says, hey, take care of this guy. Get him well. Get him fed. Nurse him up. I'll come back in a week or two, and when I come back, I'm going to pay his full tab. So everything is on me. You take care of this guy. So Jesus gets through the story, and he looks at the guy, and he's like, you tell me, which of these three was a neighbor? And you tell the guy, he's like, oh, man, of course it's the Samaritan that did that. And Jesus says, you go and do the same. And so Jesus casts this really, 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 really wide net your neighbor is other humans. Um, I think in this context, going back to Hebrews, we can go back to Hebrews. I think the idea here, in the original context, when it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I think what he's talking about is fellow believers, but it could, it could bridge beyond believers. See, during this time, there was no Motel 6 keeping the light on for you as you traveled through. The hotels were actually brothels, and not just brothels, but they were uh, in the prostitution. That was actually like a form of religious practice. And so for a Christian to stay in this place, it would have been a really uncomfortable thing to do and not desired. And so as people passed through town, it really was dependent on fellow believers hosting other believers or other non-believers. This being hospitable, welcoming them into their home. Um, 
We read in 3 John, the first eight verses, there's a guy, Gaius. We learn about Gaius and that he, he was uh, some sort of handicap. There was something limiting his ability um, to function, like to, to get out and to serve. But he had a home, and, he, and he, he obviously was of wealth. And as Christians, fellow believers, stopped by, he would always open his home to them. And, and John writes, hey, I've heard about the report, guys, that when Christians come through, when fellow brothers and sisters in Christ come through, you open your home, you take care of them, you send them off better than when they came. He's like, man, the report is going out everywhere about you. He's like, guys, I want you to be encouraged to know that whatever these brothers and sisters in Christ are doing for the Lord, your spiritual account is getting spilled based on what they're doing because you took care of them. You know, a few months ago, it was actually Mother's Day. I warned Scott and Lise that I was, well, I actually warned Lise. So Scott, I don't know if she talked to you as your, <laughs> well, I said I was going to bring them up to you. So there's Scott and Lise back there. You guys can raise your hands. It was Mother's Day, leading up to Mother's Day. Um, the Mannings, or Josh, shoots me a text like two weeks out, and he says, hey, man, I'd like to come through. Can, can I bring some students from IBC, Indian Bible College, through Valley Center? We want to look at some of the reservations around, and we need a place to stay. And I'm like, when? when? I'm like, Josh, that's Mother's Day. I'm like, that's going to be tough. But, but you guys can stay, like, you can stay with us, your family. We can host you guys because I'm hospitable. I've been learning. I'm practicing. You guys are welcome. Who, who's all coming? You, Heidi, the kids? That would be great. He's like, well, actually, we're going to have some students with us. We might, he's like, I don't really know yet. We'll know, like, last minute. But it, it could be upwards of, like, five to eight guys and five to eight young ladies. And I'm like, Josh, a Mother's Day? That's what I thought. I didn't say that. I want to be hospitable. I want to worship the Lord. Gratitude, thankfulness. And I said, okay, I, I'll ask. So from the pulpit, I tried to ex, you know, extort you all through pastoral coercion. And I said, is anybody willing to host some people? I have no idea who they are. I don't know how many of them there are going to be. And it's Mother's Day for the whole weekend. Would you be willing to open your house to four to eight young Native American kids, male and female? Scott and Lise, I don't even think I knew them at the time. Like, I, I think they had just started attending. And so she walks up to me afterwards and she said, I'll, I'll do it. I'm like, you'll do what? Well, host them. God's provided a great house. We want to use it for his glory. We would, sure will love to have. And what was your name again? <laughs> Lise, can I get your phone number? So I take everything down, and I call and I call Josh, and I say, "Hey, Josh, there's this couple that they started coming to the church. I don't even know them. They could be murderers or something. I don't know. Like, I, like <laughs> they they said they're willing to host whoever you guys are. They're coming, but I don't know them. So if you're murdered, it's not my fault, you know. Like, and." And he's like, that sounds good to me. I'll, put the, I'll, I'll stay with the kids over there. And, and so within like a week, this, fam, this I forget how many of us. We took some and they took some. I think we took the girls and they took the, the, the hooligan boys. And, and uh, like the first night Josh comes over and I'm like, hey, how are those people you're staying with? He said, they're really nice. The house is it's beautiful. It's, it's a perfect setup. And we're down in the basement. And like we're down in this lower room and, 
you know, Scott came and he told the boys, he said, you're welcome to anything in the house, but don't go through that door. Because if you go through that door, you're going to get attacked by like five Belgian Malamois. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, how funny would that be? And so we're kind of laughing. And they're dog people. They have all these Belgian Malamois. Like German Shepherds on steroids is what a Belgian Malamois is. And, and uh, the, the point of all of this is I was super encouraged that they just like came into the church and said, sure, we'll have them. It's Mother's Day. However many, whatever. We'll... It was beautiful. And through that, I got to know them. They're great people. And then I got to know the kids, and they got to know the kids. So they're blessed. I'm going to speak on your behalf, but I'm pretty sure you were blessed by them at your house. I know that they were blessed by them at their house. As a pastor and as a church, I was just so blessed to say, Mother's Day, we got you covered. So there's an open invitation to all of your guys' houses by a bunch of strange people. I don't know, like just whatever. Uh, Just give me your keys, and I'll let you know when they're going to show up. (laughs) And uh, I, I think that this is what he's talking about. And if this doesn't have you uncomfortable enough, where it's going to get worse. Let's talk about the prisoners. <laughs> Verse 3. I wasn't joking. Remember the prisoners. Remember the prisoners. Now, this verse has been used for prison ministry for a long time. Um, it's not the context. It's not talking about common criminals. Now, I'm, not, I, I'm all for prison ministry. Uh, we partner with people that you do ministry. I'm all for uh, reaching the lost, which includes prisoners. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for all sin, including murder, including horrible crimes, because God is good. Um, but the context here is the early church was facing extreme persecution. If you identified with Christ, that could have led to your being arrested taken into custody. Your execution, like many in the early church. And he says, remember the prisoners. Remember your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. I want you to notice that word body. The Bible will refer to a, a phrase like household of the faith. Um, we're a body. So when one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And we are terribly complex uh, creations that we have the capacity simultaneously to rejoice and mourn at the exact same time. And he says, I want you to remember these prisoners. I find it interesting that he doesn't give specific commands on what to do. He just says, I want you to remember them. I want you to consider them. I want you to think about them. And I want you to do this with empathy. As though you were in prison with them. He says, as you think about these brothers and sisters in Christ who you may or may not know, just imagine that you're there with them. Now contemplate it. Think about it. So I think I've thought about this a lot. My, one of my worst fears is to end up in prison for something I didn't do. Which I know, like everybody else that's there, I'm going to be the other guy. It's like, I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. I watch these terrible shows on occasion 
like locked up abroad and stuff. And it's terrible when you travel. Like I'm going to end up somewhere and I'm going to get arrested in a foreign prison. And I hope when I'm there, you guys will remember me. And I think if I'm there, well, what, what? Was, let's just say I'm there for my faith. Because that would be the context. Pastor Gunner is now arrested because he did something that if I did it, it would, it would be a compromise to the scriptures, to, to the faith, and I don't back down, I get arrested. So what it's saying is I would like, think about it as if you were in his shoes. Would you want a letter? Can you write a letter? Well, write a letter. We know that those under house arrest, and in order for them to eat and survive, it required outsiders to deliver food and resources to them. So as you remember them, do they need food? Do they need help? Do they need care? Well, if you were there, would you want it? Then do it. Um, we live in a context where we don't know persecution. We can say persecution. Persecution is not the threat of losing our tax exemption status. That is not. We as Christians don't give to get a tax deduction at the end of the year. It's a perk. But, but, but how we live is guided by what God has told us to do. But we do have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are in prison and are suffering because they would not recant their faith in Christ. We're not exempt from this. So when I look at this, I have to ask myself, remember the prisoners as though you were there. Like, what, what can I do? Can I do anything? Am I aware of them? So I go, oh, I've, maybe you go to the Voice of the Martyrs. Research. I, I've, I've heard about a guy that's a pastor in Iran that's in prison. Can I write a letter to him? Probably not. Can I pray for him? Probably so. If I was in prison, would I want people praying for me? Probably, I think so. If I was in prison in Iran as an American for being a pastor, would I want more than prayers? Well, maybe they can't get me a letter. Could I, as an individual, reach out to my congressperson, my senator, saying, hey, as a citizen of the United States, as a Christian, there's a fellow believer in Christ overseas, and I want our government to do something. I could probably do that. And I'm terribly convicted reading and thinking and remembering and contemplating because have I done any of this stuff? No. Am I aware of other Christians? I, like generally speaking, but do I have specific individuals that I'm trying to like reach out for? No, not at all. So maybe this week I have homework to go figure out to find a Christian that's arrested and, and to help them somehow. Uh, 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 another thought that came up is the hospital. Hospital's kind of like a prison. You know, I think about Robert. Um, you know, Robert's in prison, or I mean hospital. <laughs> if you've been in the hospital, food's about the same. Your ability to do what you want's about the same. <laughs> like, there's a lot of similarities. And so as a pastor, I've learned over the years, I've probably done like way more hospital visits as a pastor than I ever did as a Navy SEAL. And um, I've learned that people like different things in the hospital. Like me personally, like I would covet your prayers, but if I'm in the hospital, I don't really want visitors. Like, if, I mean, like my wife is okay. Um, like maybe one person. 
like the introvert side, like if a bunch of people come, I'm going to start feeling like I have to do stuff, and that's probably not good. Like I, I see Miss Pat back there. She had heart surgery. She was leading up to heart surgery. It was like the whole church was there over 24 hours. Finally, the hospital kicked our church out. They said, she's going into heart surgery. You guys need to leave because you're not helping her. But she wants us here. The surgeon does not want you here, <laughs> so we all got kicked out. As I consider Robert, Robert wants you guys to text him. Robert wants you to visit him if you can. Now, the hospital has rules, and it's children's hospital, so you probably can't visit him. I, out of the command to let the love of the brethren dominate my thought, do I love Robert? Absolutely. Robert is a wonderful guy. Special. Can't tell you as a pastor how many people I meet like out in town that, oh, you go to Grace Point Church. Do you know Robert? Like Just this week, some lady called the church. She's like, I want to visit your church because I met Robert at my place of work. And so I'm tired today. I don't like people time. I mean, I say I sound so terrible as a pastor. <laughs> but my love for the Lord, my love for Robert, I know that Robert wants me to go visit him today. So when church is over, I'm going to go visit Robert. Not because I'm a great guy. I'm not a great guy. God has done a work, and God made me a pastor because he needed to teach me how to become a Christian. I'm ashamed to say that. But over, like if I've learned anything in the last 10 years being a pastor, all I've learned is how to be a Christian. As a pastor, you have to do things. But I realize I'm not doing it because I'm a pastor. I'm doing it because I'm a Christian. Probably spent enough time on this point, so and we got a lot to cover. So remember the prisoners re- re- as though you were in prison with them. The body. Now we get to marriage. Gratitude, worship. What does marriage have to do with it? He says marriage is to be held in, a mo- in honor among all. This is as relevant as possible. So on one, one, one side of the coin back then is, is marriage was viewed very negatively because... Um, touch, sexuality, uh, any sort of, that was viewed as sinfulness of the flesh. So marriage was not, it was viewed as a terrible thing. And and there's no place for a Christian to get married. Then the other side was very much like our culture, like, oh, you get two people committed for the rest of their life? Like, I don't know, that's just that's boring. And so all of us, whether you're married or not, as Christians, we're instructed to hold marriage in honor among all, that we have an obligation in this world. If, like First and foremost, what is marriage? Well, marriage is defined by Genesis, the, where the creator created this wonderful gift of marriage. And we're told all through the scripture that marriage is the union between one man and one woman, period. You honor marriage by when you encounter other married people, whether you're married or unmarried, and the individual, if they express, hey, I'm really going through a hard time, our default out of gratitude for the Lord, out of worship of the Lord, our response is, you know, marriage is hard, but you made a vow before God, and you, God wants you to stick it out. God wants you to work on your marriage for his glory and your benefit. And so we honor marriage in that way. And then he gives to those who are married, he says marriage is the marriage bed is to be undefiled and there's a warning for fornicators and adulterers will face judgment. So 
we're told to, if you're married, to value your marriage, to guard your marriage, to nurture and cultivate your marriage. Protect it. There's warnings. This is all in the context of being grateful to God. It's all in the context of worshiping God. So you cultivating your marriage is actually you worshiping the Lord. And it would be very easy to, at times, if you're going through good times, to then worship your marriage and your family, but you're supposed to be worshiping God, gratitude, and worship of him. Then we come to the other, the good stuff. You guys are all thankful that I'm running short on time. Because now we're going to talk about money. I don't talk about money at church. I don't ask for money. We don't push it. Money is a stewardship item, and if it comes up in the scriptures, we'll talk about it. And today when it's talked about, it's not talked about me asking you for money. That's, that's not what's being said. What's being talked about here is character. Now, the litmus test for your character is how do you relate to money? How do you relate to your stuff? Because this exposes your heart. And I think that this uh, issue of your character and the issue of money and your stuff, it bleeds into all of these things, loving the brethren. Well, if I love you all, like Christ loved the church, and I really find that you're in need, and I have stuff, I, God might convict me to give you some of my stuff because I love you. And so maybe I don't want to develop a relationship because I might have to give some of the stuff, and this stuff is my security, not God. If I think, think about a stranger, you, if you host somebody in your home, that means you've got to provide toilet paper for them, you've got to provide water for them, you've got to pay for the heating the water, you've got to feed them, you've got to clean for them, you've got to do laundry. Like all this stuff costs money and resources. They don't, they don't reimburse you for that stuff. And so sometimes holding on to your stuff keeps you from doing this other stuff. And so we're said, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And when we see this word, we're like, oh, what, what love is that talking about? Because there's like, wait, there's three loves in Greek. There's, there's uh, uh, what is it? It's uh, agape, this commitment love. There's phileo, which is Philadelphia, brotherly love. There's eros, which I don't need to explain. is erotic love kind of thing. Yeah. So which one is it? It's none of them. This is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. It's mentioned in Timothy, and it's mentioned here, and it's actually the word is dealing with greediness. So it's to love greediness. It's to hoard stuff. It's to value stuff more than God. And so we're encouraged, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Kent Hughes tells a story of ancient times. There was a king in his kingdom who suffered from a great illness. Illness struck, tragedy struck him uh, from all around. And a wise man approached him and said, all you need to be freed from this tragedy that you're experiencing is to find a contented man and get get his shirt So he sent out search parties amongst his kingdom, and they didn't find a contented man. Came back, they broke the good news, there's no contented man in your kingdom. He said, okay, you guys need to come up with a plan, go to the the outermost part of the realm and find a contented man. So they came back and they said, we found a contented man, but he didn't have a shirt. (laughs) 
So the moral of the story is that the consensus of enduring wisdom is that contentment the consensus of enduring wisdom is that contentment comes from a source other than things or possessions. And the author here of Hebrews is pointing them to your contentment is in Christ, not in your stuff. Um, this week I went to my dad's house in the uh, retirement home and, and um, down the hallways, their little piece of real estate in the home, I mean, it's like football fields long of hallways. And in front of their doors is sort of like their spot to sort of advertise to the world. And we're now in uh, fall season. And so they, the Thanksgiving theme, I love it. And I'm, I, well, one lady's the cookie lady. She always has baked cookies. So I always go on that floor, shoot down that hallway. I want to bless her by eating cookies. Her gift of hospitality, I want to receive it. And, and so I go down there. So I shoot past the cookie lady. I'm, I'm, she was actually out of cookies, but that's a different story that today. And, and then I see this sign. And there was a sign that stopped me in my tracks. And the sign said, gratitude turns what we have into enough. Brilliant. Gratitude turns what we have into enough. And if you understand who God is, it's very easy to be content with your stuff. And this is exactly what he says. He's going to say, this is what God has said. And because God has said this, you can say this. This is how the passage ends. Look what it says. For he himself has said, I will not desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We have that promise from God that if, if, if you're his child, he will never desert you. He will never forsake you. You have confidence. You have assurance in his hand in your life. Whether you have much or little is what Paul says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, that, that's a, I think that's a terrible translation because we as a society have manipulated it. If you read the context, the way that Gunner's translation of that Greek is, I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. And so whether you have much or you have little, your contentment comes in Christ. And we're told here, the author of Hebrews says, God said to us, he will never desert us he will never forsake us. And because he has said that, you can say this. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so when we look at this passage dealing with gratitude and, and worship, if we keep God in the center of our lives, I think we practice um, gratitude and, and worship. It starts with gratitude as if you just, you know, we play a silly game in our house. We have the thankful game. You go through the alphabet. For example, if I got A, I would always say Anna. I'm thankful for Anna. And then when she gets a G, she's obligated to say she's thankful for Gunner. <laughs> and so you just kind of go through the alphabet and you just, you have to say something that you're thankful for in the alphabet. During the season, it's time where Anna puts a butcher block paper in our kitchen and we draw thankful trees. And after dinner, she goes around and says, hey, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And so as we give thanks, we recognize what God has done for us. We're reminded of his provision. We are reminded of his care for us so that when we're instructed to love one another, when we're instructed to care for prisoners, when we're instructed to honor our marriages, when we're instructed to do these things, we recognize that God is in control God is ultimately our provision, and he'll take care of us. Again, Jesus in Matthew 22, 
verses 36 through 40, he was approached by an attorney, and the attorney says, what is the most important law? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment of all is Deuteronomy 6, 4. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he went on to say, the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that the whole law and prophets hinge on that truth. And the guys were blown away. But then, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as he had his disciples, as he washed their feet, as he sat down with them, in John 13, 34, and 35, he upped, I don't know if you can say Jesus upped the ante. He doubled, no, he can't. He, he raised the bar. He took that command and he says, I have a new commandment for you. That you love one another, not as you love yourselves, but as I have loved you. So the new standard were to love one another as Christ loved us. Christ gave his life for us, and that's the standard by which we love one another. So our worship of God is actually revealed through our relationships. How do we treat one another? It says a lot about your relationship with God. We have a vertical relationship with God, but that vertical relationship goes out to our horizontal relationships and affects everything. A couple questions to ponder that I've had in my mind. Have, have you encountered this living God? See, this isn't a system of like works to do. The most important thing is that you experience God and his gift. And we're told that as you receive his gift, that Jesus died for you, that his work on the cross was sufficient. We're told that he transforms us. He changes us. The old is done away with, the new has come. And we no longer think the way we used to. It's a process. And then for those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior, this isn't a question for you to answer right now, but this week, little ping pong ball in your mind, ask yourself, how has your worship of God, let me just read what I wrote instead of trying to, how has your worship of God manifested in various relationships and material wow. items? Has your relationship with God changed how you view your stuff? Has your relationship with God affected how you have relationships with other people? And we're told in his word here that, that it should. And so, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We're told that his work on the cross was sufficient that it was once and for all, that he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are told that in him we have access to the holiest of holies, that we now are at peace with you because your wrath was satisfied on the cross. And so, Father, we offer our lives to you. We are all in different places. We all have different needs. Father, we ask that you would just take our lives, that you would, as we sang before the message, that we would make our lives a prayer to you. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand this truth that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray that that tr truth would take root in our hearts, that we would no longer have to fear 
for our future, for our stuff, how we give and interact with others. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be honoring to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.